Welcome to this mini-series of Data for What, the Development Gateway podcast. Over the course of four episodes, we will explore open data, data governance, and privacy, as well as the many challenges and opportunities within these topics. I'm your host, Beverly Hatrimbu. In this episode, what we're really looking to get at overall today are what are digital rights and how do they manifest in non-Western contexts, and what some of the key opportunities and risks are to identifying collective data rights and designing policy frameworks that reflect these approaches. So ultimately, what would it look like to talk about governing data from the perspective of community rather than individual rights? In this episode, we'll grapple with this question by looking at varied examples of policymaking and community building to highlight how some communities are managing data and what we could be learning from them. A little bit about the why of this episode. The European Union rocked our world, or at least mine, with the passing of the General Data Protection Regulation in 2018. And since then, it seems that every few months, there is another story of a country passing a data protection law or policy to set the scene for responsible data management. But there's a big chunk of this discussion missing in my view. If you look closely, whether in Europe, South Africa or China, the rights and protections espoused often focus on individual rights, the need for individuals to understand and protect their own rights. But not all societies are structured with the individual at the center. Societies around the world conceptualize rights, protections, and management through the lens of ethnicity, religion, and regional identity, just to name a few collective identities. How should we balance between being a part of the global consensus on data needs, harms, and knowledge, while also acknowledging that these factors are context-specific? Much of the global conversation has come from people located in countries that are wealthy, global powers, and that power dynamic and viewpoint matters. So, how do we add to the conversation to bring in nuance? Today, we are so lucky to have Irene Mwendwa speak to her experiences around policy, digital harms, protections, and collective action in Uganda, across Africa, and connecting to global policy discussions. So let's dive in. Thank you very much, Bev. My name is Irene Mwendwa, and I am a lawyer by profession. I lead strategic initiatives and feminist movement building at policy. Who is policy? First of all, policy is spelled with a double L, and we are a feminist civic tech organization based in Kampala, Uganda, and we work on the intersections of data and technology. What do I mean by this? I mean that we try to engage citizens to understand the power of data and technology in their lives. And in this instance, our our own elected officials, journalists, everyday internet users in different parts of Africa, as well as our own friends in the civil society sector. Fantastic. And policy, you guys make very distinct decision to be feminist framed and to look at data and harms and activities through a feminist lens. Where did that come from and why is that such an important part of how you structure your work? To be fair and to be honest, the definition of feminist tech to date has never been well coined. But from where we stand, we believe that everyone deserves to enjoy the internet. And in this sense, then we decided to use this approach to engage those who have always been marginalized and even now online, because traditionally is a world where we didn't necessarily use much technology. And now online where we are using a lot of technology and digital technology in that matter, we have seen that some of the marginalization, discrimination, and exclusion is shifting into digital platforms and also uh, some of the innovation and technologies coming up. So we asked ourselves as an organization, how can we ensure that we work together? And working together for us means that the same people who have been traditionally excluded are able to shape some of these solutions and are also able to speak about how they use this 
these technologies. Our approach for feminist tech is, first of all, creating narratives. And when we create narratives, it shows that indeed Africa and parts of the continent are uh, contributory into some of the innovations we see every day. And then number two, historicizing, using, using technology to depict what African women and girls and other marginalized communities in the continent and parts of Africa have been able to do so far when it comes to innovation to these digital technologies. Both you individually, Irene, and sort of policy as a whole really highlights that the marginalization that we we suffer and see and experience in the analog world very much carries over to the digital if we're not intentional about changing those patterns. So let's continue to dive in on this because I think you've opened that framing really well. So what do you mean when you say digital rights, particularly when you're talking about what are digital rights of communities or digital rights of individuals? We also have taken up the definition that was coined and developed by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we believe that it's simply rights exercised in digital spaces or environments. And at the same time, we know that there is direct application and transfer of human rights as defined under some of the resolutions of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights so that we can be able to uphold dignity and equality of people everywhere, including online spaces. So in as much as digital and online spaces themselves do not refer to internet spaces and mainly social media platforms, we also expand this definition to include applications such as smart fridges, Fitbits that you wear on your hand, uh, surveillance cameras, and other biometrics, uh, biometric softwares that are used in our everyday life in our societies. That's really helpful because sometimes I think the term digital rights gets used and thrown around a lot and people don't always have a clear understanding of what that can mean. So you touched on this a little bit in your intro talking about why policy has been a feminist lens or feminist focused organization and been a champion of approaching data and digital rights through that lens. What assumptions are we sort of collectively as a community making about harms women face in digital spaces as well as the opportunities that may need to be broken down? Where we stand at policy, we have seen that there are a lot of challenges when it comes to data governance and digital infrastructure governance in parts of the continent. So what we know so far is that there needs to be a rethinking uh, towards data and a balance of digital power. What I mean is that the current ecosystem, digital and data ecosystem, the frameworks are not inclusive. We know that they are short-sighted, they continue to be disempowering, and they are also very exploitative. One of our research that was commissioned by our founder, Nima Aya, also in terms of exploitation, found that a lot of data collected in the continent and other parts of the global south, this data is collected and used to inform solutions in the global north, whereas the best model will be to first start with where the, the data or information has been collected. The other thing we saw in terms of short, short-sightedness, in the wake of the pandemic uh, 2021, we conducted a research and interviewed over 200 women rights organization representatives, social movement actors, women human rights defenders, and everyday women and asked them how they use digital platforms or, you know, the internet. And they told us, of course, they they use the internet to collectivize, they use the internet to historicize, and they also use the internet to seek for solutions. But at the same time, they told us that there's something that is happening in terms of data. Sometimes when we we conduct research, sometimes when we have information on what's happening on the ground as the women rights actors in parts of Africa, we find that the reports that are put out in some organizations, 
organizations or entities in other parts of the world are not a true collection of what is happening on the ground. With that, then it meant that there was clear short-sightedness in terms of data governance, infrastructures or frameworks in the continent where they do not adequately provide for verification of data that is being shared in terms of what is the information being shared about the continent. And therefore, women rights actors, women rights human defenders, and generally people in the human rights social movement were able to provide feedback in terms of when there are, there are feminist data governance structures, they will ensure that some of the information being collected or data being collected in Africa will first develop or improve the current status of the continent, will first be used to address or improve innovations in the continent before they are used by multinationals and other billionaires to continue building on their digital ecosystems and infrastructure. The third thing that I would speak to, especially on this empowerment, is that many in our research, throughout our research, we keep hearing the same thing of a lack of agency over how our data is generated and used because there continue to be power imbalances between, of course, people, big tech or digital platforms themselves, and even our national governments. What we found is that as we were conducting research, I can give you an example in the wake of the 2021 Ugandan election, we were able to scrap data of the uh, different digital platforms for our research. Currently, we are not able to scrap off any data on any platform to conduct public interest research. You can see that day by day, the rules continue changing, even where there are public interests or public good interests that is being sought to be addressed. So organizations like ourselves who are at the margins of civil society and technology, you know, innovators, we really are grappling with the issue of disempowerment where we are, we are not able to address fully some of these challenges by ourselves. And we thought the best model is to use multi-stakeholder approaches, which I can speak to as we continue with this wonderful podcast. I think that's a perfect example of how data scraping can be used in ways that people don't expect. Coming back to the theme of the episode, there are pros and cons that don't fit neatly into individual rights on one side and community rights on the other. What do marginalized groups lose in systems built around individual rights? And what do individuals lose in systems built around communities and group identities? When you look at how the current systems are built, they continue to pose a risk of over-reliance of our dependence. And this eventually is a form of structural dependence that will not be able to suit and fit everyone's needs. The current uh, experience for an African like myself and for many other Africans is that the information or data collected from me is used up by some of the uh, innovators and tech companies, but does not address the very important needs that are seeking to be addressed. We found that at policy, the best way to address the sources of power of big tech companies is to ensure that we use a multi-stakeholder approach. And in this sense, then we need to identify who are the left out communities, the communities on the margins rather, and how can we engage them in terms of addressing some of the challenges they face every day when it comes to data protection, some of the forms of discrimination that we see online, and also the issues of inclusion online. To do this, we have been championing for data governance models that, you know, that address the specific needs of Africans. And in this sense, then you started off by mentioning the European Union general data protection provision. And we say uh, here in Africa that we must have protective mechanisms and preventative mechanisms that embrace our culture, that embrace our uniqueness, that also embrace that we are also part and parcel of the innovators of some of these technologies 
technologies, even though they stem and continue to uh, be brought from the global north. So those are some of the issues we've seen in terms of groups being marginalized. The positive goal that we have eventually is looking at some of the innovations and algorithms being developed by private and public actors, must also consider that there are wonderful individual or societal goals that we hope to achieve. So in, instead of uh, really developing models that are very commercial or models that are very non-inclusive, it's important for scientists and technologists to consider models that embrace democratic principles and also really embrace the public good of our society. I think that's extremely important. It's really engaging with and 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 critiquing the models that we rely on for data and digital engagement and seeing how they can be taken in ways that we don't always expect. I think that's that's a really essential point. So I've seen policy sort of as an organization start out focused on data and digital rights specific to Uganda, but I have seen how that scope has broadened to be pan-African, as well as to highlight that Africa has a lot to offer the global conversation on rights and governance, not just as a recipient of ideas. What are the top three perspectives you've gained in the African data rights space that you feel should be highlighted in global conversations on rights and governance? I'll start off by saying a very simple thing. We have to rethink regulatory approaches in digital markets. This is because I was part of Women Human Rights Defenders mission in November of 2022, where we approached or we used a multi-stakeholder approach to speak to the big tech companies in the US at Silicon Valley. We also visited the White House, we visited some uh, state department offices, the USAID, and other civil society actors and academia to just hear what they do, some of the solutions they are trying to bring out. And as I was listening to everyone contributing, you know, people spoke about the EU market, the Asian market, and Africa was mentioned here and there. And at that point, I was struggling a lot with how are some of these solutions and regulations coming up globally. So there is definitely a very very specific need to rethink the regulatory approaches in digital markets where innovators, technologists, and policymakers are able to understand that Africa is also a market and it's able to contribute to some of the solutions that are coming up. And also to understand that Africa right now is, uh, we have over 60 to 80% of the population made up of people under the age of 35. It means most of us will be the next labor force for some of the opportunities coming up in this digital and online markets. So it's very important to consider the frameworks that many of these labor sources will be working under. If I'm coming from Kenya, if I'm coming from Senegal, if I'm coming from Sierra Leone, we all have different labor frameworks and we would hope to see that they are merged and reconsidered and put in consideration when it comes to online markets and also some of the opportunities that are coming up on in the platforms. The other thing I can speak about some of the developments I'm seeing is some of the developments in data and AI policy. There was a research that was conducted by some of our friends as late as I think this April of 2023 here in Kenya, where they just looked at the landscape of AI uh, innovation and also framework setting. And the study found that to date, the field of AI innovation in a country like Kenya, which is considered to be very progressive, continues to be very scattered. They all have very unique innovations that they're trying to bring out, especially the private sector AI solution developers. However, they have zero framework that can 
guide them on how to operate. They continue to rely on standards. They continue to rely on frameworks that are based in the global north, which do not necessarily fit our context. That's another area that I think it's something that we need to watch out and look out for as a whole, because it's going to affect all sectors, starting from health, agriculture, criminal issues, civic issues in our lives and all that. The last issue maybe I can say we need to look out for is some of the weak enforcement of the regulatory frameworks that we are coming up with in Africa. The weak enforcement, unfortunately, is stemming greatly from weak enforcement of some of the other major laws that we see in our continent. Unfortunately, a lot of crime is happening online, and this affects a lot of processes. When you look at democratic processes where women are supposed to be elected officials, but every single day they are being discouraged from using online platforms. Platforms, you see that online hate and weak enforcement of some of the hate provisions continue to hamper how women participate online. If you look at how financial institutions continue to use our data, continue to enforce some of the financial regulations, there's a very huge discrepancy because the citizenry or many people are not aware of some of the provisions that can protect them when they're using solutions online, when they're using online banking services or online or digital services to transact. So what we've seen is a very, very huge need for capacity strengthening for some of the stakeholders who are working in this ecosystem. And the internet users themselves, where big tech companies have, have an obligation and opportunity to share additional information as much as they can, where it relates to issues to do with, you know, enforcement of some of these laws that we see coming up. These are really meaty issues to tackle. <laughs> Something that I had wanted to ask early and I think picks up well from some of these key entry points that you've highlighted around the regulatory framework, the strong need for ever improving digital literacy. What gives you hope? Are there examples you've seen at the national, regional or continental level of the beginnings of a responsive data governance framework that either adequately recognizes collective harms or does a strong job or starts to do a good job of of championing individual rights, particularly for women and marginalized groups. What are some good examples you've seen out there that we should be highlighting or talking about more often? This very podcast and many others that are coming out in my country, Kenya, and different parts of Africa are a very, very good example of championing for better digital rights. Why is this so? When we are on a podcast, we are sharing about critical issues and other communities are able to listen in and engage. Organizations like ourselves are conducting Africa-based research or research that is about an African's experience in terms of using data and digital technology. So those two models so far are very wonderful tools for creating social change when it comes to internet governance. The other thing I believe I use in my everyday work is movement building. As a movement builder for the past 10 years, I've been engaging in different fields in the spectrum of the law. I've been able to engage in human rights. I've been able to engage in commercial issues. I've been able to engage in other societal issues. And I'm able to bring the interconnections when it comes to internet use. I've been privileged to engage with mainstreams of civil society actors here in Kenya and at the Pan-African level to show the very much needed regulation of our framework in terms of digital technologies and data use. At the Pan-African level, I know in August of 2022, the 
Africa Commission, uh, which is the commission in charge of peoples and human rights at the regional level, was able to institute a mechanism against online hate and specifically for women who continue to be the most affected people. I've seen that they've continued these conversations where they are looking at how they want to engage organizations like ourselves to see how they can build that provision and framework better so that member states can ratify and implement. So starting the conversation is a very, very wonderful tool and this podcast and many other uh, technological-based solutions have continued to provide room to discuss these issues. My last maybe takeaway is recognizing that children right now have more devices. So it's important that some of the solutions that are going out to them to contain as much information as they can so that they can communicate effectively about the power of the internet and data, as opposed to just communicating to the parents alone who most of the time may be busy with other things. So recognizing the population and addressing some of the challenges we see in the society today through this population, especially in Africa, is also a very powerful tool to use as well. Great. I love to chat with people, especially about issues that I'm passionate about. So it's really been such a treat to have the special series to have a chance to dig into some of these issues. You'd mentioned other podcasts. Are there any that you'd recommend to people who are listening who might want to learn more about these topics or others? Yes, yes, definitely. Shamelessly going to plug one of our partners in this work. It's an Africa-based podcast on online safety. It's called the Digital Dada Podcast. It's hosted by our good friend Cecilia Muen here in Nairobi, Kenya, she has been able to bring different speakers on it to, to share about the experiences. An everyday internet user, a journalist, a media personality who is recognized in the whole continent, just to share the very need of why we need to, to regulate some of these some of these issues that we are seeing today, especially on online violence against women. Maybe the other podcast I can also shamelessly plug that I listen to a lot would be a fun one, and that would be the, is it the Telegraph's had Hard folk, I think that's the one because it addresses or speaks about some of the technological issues coming out regularly. Those are the two that I really listen to very, very regularly and update myself on the latest news. I love that. Anything else you're reading or watching that helps you tackle these issues or think about them more deeply? Oh, yes. Currently, I'm also just beginning to go into an European journal on law and technology that was published last year by two professors of law in Europe, in Brussels. It's called the Vulnerable Data Subject, Agenda Data Subject. This, of course, looks at gender data and the importance of gender data. And it's going to be, I was actually joking with my colleagues, this is our new Afrofeminist data Bible because it covers very, very well why, why we need to really ensure that they, um, there is gender data. So this is something that we hope to also enforce at the organization level and also in some of the projects that we are going to be undertaking and I'd recommend everyone to read it. What an amazing resource. I'm not familiar with it I'm, and I'm looking forward to digging in. So we'll gather all of these as we've done in previous episodes. We'll gather some of these resources and share them alongside the episodes so that people, other people can read them as well. Thanks for the, thanks for the hot tip, Irene. 
on my side, I'm continuing to engage. I've we're in the in the spirit of of shameless plugs. I've got to say, I I got to say this before we started the recording, but I'm a huge fan girl of policy, and I think that policy's um, ongoing project and work generating from their um, their project on African women in artificial intelligence is excellent. It's really accessible and dynamic. There's a recording of the launch of the event. There's a really fantastic report. So it's I think it doesn't it doesn't count as a shameless plug if I do. It right, <laughs> but I'm just so I'm so excited to highlight that work because I found it so interesting to read and to watch and to engage with. Um, so I'd really encourage anybody who's listening to check that out. So that would be my one plug. The other thing I've been reading a book called Venomous Lump Suckers about a sci-fi. It's a sci-fi novel set. I, I think a hundred years from now, and it's about extinction of human species and why I think that this is. It's very funny and very inappropriate, but it's also quite relevant to this topic because I think there's something to be said for again thinking about. We're all sort of pursuing our lives individually, but there are collective harms and also collective benefits from protecting one another and taking each other's lives and experiences seriously. And the book is, it's a fiction novel. It's through the lens of of protecting rare animal species, but I think that, that there is a lesson in there for all of us. So if you are on the hunt for new fiction reading or new sci-fi reading, Venomous Lump Suckers is a very good book. Irene, anything else that we haven't talked about that you wish you could share? Maybe any predictions for the future of digital rights? We have about three games, interactive games that would like we invite everyone to play and share with us feedback directly on Twitter or on our socials. We have a game on digital safety. It's called Digital Safety, T for chai. And then because you drink chai every day, then we also have another game to guide you on choosing your own fake news. And it's called exactly that, chooseyourownfakenews.com. It's going to help you understand the different sets of news in terms of misinformation, malinformation, disinformation. And we love this, especially uh, when different rumors are spreading around in our societies. And we developed this in the wake of the pandemic. So you can imagine there was a lot of misinformation. The other uh, product that I would love to speak about is to shamelessly plug our trainings platform where we have content that can be used to train local government elected officials and especially here in Africa, we believe our data governance and our digital governance issues cannot be addressed if we are not engaging people from rural backgrounds. And the way we've engaged people from rural backgrounds and other communities is working through local governments or local authorities. Our mayors, our councillors, our members of county assemblies are very, very powerful community champions. And once they understand the power of the internet and uh, the power of data, then they'll be able to communicate effectively to their communities in schools, at the hospitals and other community engagements. And here in Kenya, we call them barazas. So we want to hear our local government representatives speaking about the power of data and technology. I recently saw my, um, I would say the equivalent of our mayor, uh, he's called a governor here in Nairobi, Kenya, forming a very wonderful partnership with Mozilla Foundation just two weeks ago to uh, ensure training on many youths who are based here in Nairobi, Kenya to get online gigs or online work. So you can imagine it's a very wonderful tool if you engage with it. That's trainings.policy.org. Thank you. We at DG, we particularly love engagement with with local leadership and local champions. Sometimes there's so much focus on the national and international level, but there are champions for digital advancement hiding everywhere. So I love to hear how you guys are engaging at that level. Irene, thank you so incredibly much for taking the time out of your really busy schedule to join and to share your insights. Special thanks to our guests. 
And thanks to our producers behind the scenes, Lindsay Fincham, Annalisa Goodman, and Becca Warner. This episode was produced by Lindsay Fincham and edited by Annalisa Goodman. Our theme music was created by Mark Hatcher. Learn more about Development Gateway and IRX Venture on our website at developmentgateway.org or through our social media.